Welcome to the second day on the Kant and Colonialism Conference. Um, our first panel today, uh, we have a professor, Dr. Pauline Kleingeld of the University of Leiden. That's not my thing, though. <laughs> and um, she, for those of you who don't know, and apparently there are some, she had an edited volume by the Yale University Press that published a uh, a bunch of Kant's writings that are very much worth taking a look at towards perpetual peace and other writings on politics, peace, and history. I thought I'd get a little plug-in for that. Thank you very much. And um, her paper will be on Kant on race and economic globalization on just trade and free trade. Or that's the title on the program. Uh, That is the title on the program that describes the content of the paper, although the paper that I sent around has the title Kant and Colonialism, but it's all related, so... Uh, I am actually going to read it, uh, uh, but I'm skipping some passages because it would be way too long. And uh, I don't know if everybody has read it. There was some discussion yesterday about whether to read it or not, but uh, after that discussion, I will. A A colony is a settlement established by people migrating from a home country. And there's an important sense in which Kant is not at all opposed to forming colonies. In the Metaphysics of Morals, he writes, there's nothing wrong with admitting colonists, colonistin, um, who wish to settle on your territory as long as it doesn't infringe on the private property of those inhabitants who already live there. The lord of the land, I find it a strange expression, especially the, the one that follows, the lord of the land has the right to encourage immigration and settling by foreigners, colonists, even though his native subjects, Landeskinder, might look askance at this, provided that their private ownership of land is not curtailed by it. Um, That comment is not some merely abstract point of principle or uh, a a comment on a phenomenon overseas. It was a live issue in Prussia at the time, as Prussia had a policy of very actively promoting immigration. It attracted foreigners, lured foreigners, from all over Europe by the tens of thousands in an effort to populate, it, it, to populate its uninhabited areas and newly drained marshes. Kant indicates in the Metaphysics of Morals that establishing colonies in this way is fine because the foreign settlers are expressly permitted entry, their immigration is consensual and doesn't infringe on the property rights of those already present. Similarly, colonial settlement in the other direction, that is emigration to somewhere else, is allowed on condition that the settlement is contractually and justly arranged. Colonialism by contrast, I take it, is defined as forming or transforming colonies in a way that involves an unjust, unequal relationship. So there can be acceptable ways of forming colonies, but there cannot be acceptable forms of colonialism. I think that's a matter of definition. So we speak of colonialism, for example, when Kant describes how a country victorious in war turns the country that loses into a colony over which it rules. Even though the colony has its own constitution, legislation, and territory, Kant writes, the subjection constitutes an objectionable loss of dignity, uh, an objectionable loss of dignity, because the colonized country is illegitimately subjected to the rule of the mother state. Furthermore, in the Metaphysics of Morals, Kant criticizes the European practice of so fraudulently buying land overseas through the seat, and in towards perpetual peace, he condemns the European practice of appropriating land abroad not only without the consent of the inhabitants, but also involving their oppression. We're all familiar, it's the premise of this conference, with the fact that Kant was a vociferous critic of colonialism, especially of the conduct of European states 
on the other continents. And I'll quote just one passage. Uh, the principles underlying the supposed lawfulness of appropriating newly discovered and purportedly barbaric or religious lands as goods belonging to no one without the consent of the inhabitants and even subjugating them as well are absolutely contrary to cosmopolitan right. And there are a whole lot of other passages that I, I will actually not read because they were read uh, yesterday um, that you're familiar with uh, that have the same kind of content. Now, as far as I can see, Kant's critique of colonialism is a phenomenon of the 1790s. In the earlier decades, he seems not to have had a critical attitude at all, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Until the early 1790s, Kant endorsed a racial hierarchy related to an alleged set of intellectual and agential deficits on the part of the non-white races. Kant claimed that some races, especially blacks and Native Americans, were not able to govern themselves at all, weren't able to. In other words, if they are to be governed, it will have to be the so-called whites who have to do it. In this paper, I would first like to look at the relevance of Kant's view on race for this assessment of European colonial practices overseas. I'll argue that there's a very direct link between the changes in Kant's view on race and changes in his evaluation of colonialism. In the second part of the paper, I examine Kant's mid-1790s positive ideal of international trading relationships, that is, the ideal that he puts in place of the exploitative colonial practices, arguing that Kant was by no means an advocate of unconditional free trade, but that on his view, trade should be just first and perhaps free later. So first, a few words about Kant's 1780s racism, actually not just the 1780s, also before that, but where I prefer to find Kant's critical period the most interesting one, so I'll just confine myself to uh, the 80s and 90s. In 1788, after the publication of the Critique of Practical Reason, Kant wrote and published an essay in which he endorsed the slavery of non-whites. This was by no means his first statement on race and racial hierarchy. In fact, he'd been one of the first theorists to attempt to determine the concept of race as, as a concept that is distinct from variety and species. He had written several essays on the topic in the 1770s and 80s, especially the essays of the different uh, races of human beings and on the use of teleological principles in philosophy. Um, in a paper written between these two, the first was from the mid-70s and the second one from 88, uh, in a paper written between these two papers, namely Determination of the Concept of a Human Race from 1785, Kant restricts his discussion to physiological aspects of race and doesn't talk about intellectual and agential abilities at all, um, which had for the longest time put me on the wrong foot and made me think that any kind of racial hierarchy had dropped out of his thinking um, at the beginning of the 1780s, but um, that doesn't seem that doesn't uh, turn out to be the case. There are many 1780s notes in addition to the, uh, the papers I just mentioned by Kant and lecture notes from his students, for example, from his anthropology lectures and lectures on physical geography that provide us with additional materials on his views on race during that period. Now, in these texts, Kant connected the physiological account of race, an account in terms of the development of different bodily traits, with an account in terms of the race's uh, intellectual capacities and capacities for agency, or rather, as far as the non-whites go, their lack, the lack thereof. He wrote that whites are the only non-deficient race, 
and listed the various deficits of the other so-called races in hierarchical order. In anthropology lectures from probably 1781 to 2, Kant asserts that Native Americans are the lowest of the four races as they are completely inert, impassive, and incapable of being educated at all. He places the so-called Negroes above them as they're capable of being trained, abrichten is the term there, to be slaves, but incapable of any other form of education. Kant's acceptance of non-white slavery is also apparent in passages such as the following, I quote, Americans and Negroes cannot govern themselves, thus they serve only as slaves. <coughs> um, also from like, uh, sketches for anthropology lectures from the, from the 80s. The so-called Hindus are superior to the Negroes because they can be educated, but they can be educated only in the arts, not the sciences, and other endeavors that require abstract concepts, and the white race is superior and the only one that's non-deficient. As Kant says, the race of white contains all incentives and talents. Um, I'll skip the passage in which I write about the critique that Kant uh, received from others uh, for that, those views. Um, and uh, um, the discussion of Kant's reply to that critique where he reiterates the endorsement of um, the, an anti-abolitionist argument. Um, now, I believe that Kant's 1780s racism is quite relevant to his position on colonialism. In the 1784 essay, Idea for Universal History, in a comment between parentheses, another thing I read, read over for the longest time, he claims that Europe, quote, will probably eventually legislate for all others, that is, all other parts of the world, end quote. Now, given that Kant sketches in the idea, an idea of progress according to which history is moving toward an ideal end state, the fact that he mentions European legislation for the rest of the world as a probable end result of history is actually quite significant, I think. It means that this remark cannot be downplayed as merely a prediction of an unfortunate empirical, uh, but empirically probable future, right? He's talking about um, an idea of, of how history moves forward. Moreover, the comment is, of course, fully compatible with the racial hierarchy that Kant defended at that time. It fits well with the quoted <coughs> remark that Native Americans and blacks cannot govern themselves. In light of that comment, and others with similar content, it's not surprising that Kant would regard their government as probably a white European task. Consistent with this, Kant's 1780s texts, to my knowledge, don't contain any critique of European colonialism overseas. And so I may be wrong here, and let me know, because I need to know. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll keep saying these things. <laughs> um, one might wonder whether Kant's claim should not rather be taken non-literally. That's some of the comments I have gotten back from people when I have presented these views. Um, people have said to me, yeah, but... A Kant's claim should be taken non-literally. It should be taken to mean that Europe will spread its model of legislation uh, in form or in content instead of dictating laws elsewhere. Right? So Europe will probably give laws for the rest of the world, but this doesn't mean that they will be the kind of the superpower, that pan-legislation, bureaucracy, but uh, it means that other parts of the world will take over you know, forms of self-government, democracy, or maybe perhaps the content of the laws as the Europeans have developed them. But there is to my, but I think, you know, even though I can't rule it out, 
um, I think the burden of proof here is on the people who assert that. And to my knowledge, there's no other text in Kant's work in which Gesetze geben, or Gesetzgebung, Gesetzgebung means spreading the model of legislation. It simply means giving laws, which in the case of the passage at hand would mean that the Europeans will probably at some point give laws to the rest of the world in the form of some kind of colonial rule. And again, this reading is, as I said, supported by comments such as that uh, blacks and Native Americans are incapable of governing themselves. So it fits together in a way that I think is quite um, compelling as far as this reading goes. During the first half of the 1790s, however, this is the next section of my paper, Kant gives up the racial hierarchy. He's silent about why he changed his mind, but it's clear that he did. And he did around the time of uh, writing toward perpetual peace, because in the 1790s, even in 92, I find comments in his lectures uh, where Kant endorses David Hume's uh, racist comments about no Negro having ever shown any talent and a couple of other remarks like that. Um, and in um, draft notes for toward perpetual peace, you still find race mentioned, mentioned as a factor that nature uses wisely to impede human interaction. But in the final version, Kant removes any reference to race. And um, so I had a sense that at that time, the view was still somewhat unstable. Um, but if you look at perpetual peace itself and texts that are uh, written after that, what you see is not only that Kant drops talk of race, that he grows silent, but also that he positively says different things than he said before. So he makes salient changes in his descriptions of peoples elsewhere on earth, for example, and he introduces an entirely new category of right, a public right, entitled cosmopolitan right, explicitly assigning full juridical status to humans on all continents in a way that he did not and could not have done before. Cosmopolitan right is premised on continued interaction among humans on all continents as equals under the law, whereas previously Kant had said that nature wisely interfered with, with humans interacting in all directions because whites were able to live elsewhere but blacks were not able to move up north so well. Um, cosmopolitan right is to regulate the interactions between states and foreign individuals. Among other things, it protects non-state populations against involuntary incorporation into states and it prohibits colonialism. Kant now criticizes the colonial conquests of inhabited parts of the world by Europeans, as well as the subjection of the existing population to European rule. After having discussed European behavior in Africa, America, and Asia, he concludes, um, uh, as I quoted uh, earlier in this paper, that uh, that behavior completely violates principles of cosmopolitan right. Kant argues that it's a violation of cosmopolitan right to conquer land on other continents if they are inhabitant, inhabited, regardless of whether the people who live there have formed a state and regardless of their way of life, but if it interferes with the, their way of using the land. This is significant because in 1788 Kant still posited a hierarchy of ways of life, with agriculture being superior to hunting and pasturing. Starting in the mid-1790s, however, he defends nomadic peoples against the encroachments by Europeans, instead of describing them as failing to develop agriculture, which is what he did before. As Sankar has shown, Kant now allows for a diversity of ways of life, hunting, pastoral, and agricultural, without ranking these on a hierarchical scale. 
and he explicitly states that the choice of way of life is entirely at the discretion of those involved. Kant also changes the descriptions of the innate characteristics of different groups around the world. For example, in 1788, he lab labeled Native Americans as weak, inert, and incapable of any culture. Those are quotes. But in his 1795 Toward Perpetual Peace, he ascribes the ideal of military courage equally to Native Americans and medieval European knights. So that's a marked change. Finally, Kant has now become unambiguously opposed to chattel slavery. Robert Bernasconi has claimed that Kant was silent on the slave trade and that he, um, Bernasconi said he was aware of no passage at all, no statement by Kant calling for abolition of either African slavery or the slave trade, even if only in principle. But in the notes for toward perpetual peace, you see Kant actually repeatedly and explicitly criticizing slavery of non-Europeans in the strongest terms. And he criticizes the fact that the inhabitants of America were treated as objects belonging to no one and were displaced or enslaved soon after Europeans reached the continent. And instead of his earlier claims that Africans and Native Americans cannot <coughs> govern themselves and that Europe will probably legislate for them, Kant now envisions a world in which peoples on different continents establish peaceful egalitarian relations with each other that honor the normative principles laid down in toward perpetual peace. He sketches a vision of a world in which, quote, remote parts of the world can establish relations peacefully with one another, relations which ultimately become regulated by public laws. Uh, now, um, uh, his change of view should probably be uh, explained in terms of the fact that Kant, for the first time, seriously started to think through the meaning and implication of the ideals of freedom and equality as he was working out his political philosophy. Um, he'd been much impressed by the French Revolution and the ideals behind it, and there was a fair amount of discussion in the journals of those days of the implications of the rights of man for the status of non-Europeans. Perhaps the political events and the intellectual debates surrounding them, sur including, um, for one thing, the 1794 French abolition of slavery in the wake of the revolt of Saint-Domingue, Haiti now, prompted him to think, to rethink his earlier conception of the characteristics of races. He must have finally come to recognize the emancipatory power implicit in his own account of the principle of morality, which prohibits reducing other human beings to mere means, mere instruments in the hands of another. Perhaps also there was a delayed effect of the severe criticisms that other authors such as Georg Forster or Herder or Metzger had directed against Kant's 1780s race theory. I would like now to turn to the question of what then Kant's positive ideal of the interaction among peoples would look like in relation to trade in the mid-1790s. Cosmopolitan right covers a lot more than just trading relationships, but I'm particularly interested in the issue of trade because of the contrast with his account of trade and colonial relationships that he still endorsed in the previous decade, and because Kant's claim, of Kant's claim that the spirit of trade promotes the realization of cosmopolitan right. And so the, the issue of trade seems more closely connected to the theme of this conference than a host of other uh, questions one could ask. Kant's views on international trade have attracted very little attention. This is remarkable, even though we'll have another paper today <laughs> about it. 
Um, this is remarkable, especially given how well known Kant's claim is that the spirit of trade promotes peace. In the mid-1790s, Kant defends the ideal of a global economic market, and he believes the world is, as a matter of fact, moving in that direction. But whether he defended free trade, that is, whether his global economic, this global economic market should be a so-called free market, is a question that's hardly discussed in the secondary literature. I'll argue that if one puts Kant's remarks on the spirit of trade together with his 1790s views on economic justice and the aim of the state, that it becomes clear that Kant is neither a mercantilist or a cameralist, the German variety of that, nor an unconditional defender of free trade, nor some odd mix of that, but that he defends an alternative position of his own. Now Kant's claim that trade has positive effects for world peace by itself doesn't tell us anything yet about his attitude towards so-called free trade. Uh, in the literature, Kant's claim is often read as entailing a defense of free trade. Uh, but the claim itself is compatible with a range of positions on the matter. And other statements in toward perpetual peace in the metaphysics of morals don't speak explicitly to the desirability of free trade <coughs> at all, even though the terminology <coughs> of Handelsfreiheit was already in use at the time. And there were people defending this in Germany, in the Berlin Schimonatschrift and so on. So Kant, um, he, he, the, the terminology was there. In fact, as I read Kant's text, and I shall explain in more detail, Kant does not advocate free trade as an ideal in its own right anywhere in his published writings. What's more, there are passages in which he clearly defends protectionist measures and taxes on trade. Now, in distancing Kant from free trade advocates, my reading runs counter to that of Samuel Fleischacker, uh, who is one of the very few authors who've discussed Kant's position on international free trade at all. And Fleischacker has provided the most extensive defense of the view that Kant adopted, and in Fleischacker's words, adopted the free trade doctrine, called for the deregulation of commerce, and, says Fleischacker, Kant seems to have seen the free market as having an intrinsic ethical value quite apart from the distribution of wealth to which it might lead, end quote. That's Fleischacker's view. The role of the state on Fleischacker's interpretation of Kant should be the most minimal one, probably restricted to the protection of private property. Now, against such an interpretation, I shall here defend the view that Kant did not, decidedly did not, see the free market as an intrinsic moral ideal that would trump questions about the res resulting distribution of wealth. Instead, Kant held that the justice of trading relationships is of more fundamental importance than the freedom of trade, and that protectionism and material redistribution are permissible or even required as a matter of right under certain circumstances. I also hope to show that these arguments can be extended to the international level in such a way that they, don't, that they not only rule out colonialism, but also support the duty of international assistance as a matter of right. It's all, it gets to be a bit speculative, but you'll see why I think this. Now, Fleischacker mentions only two passages that, in his view, provide the evidence that Kant saw the free market as having an intrinsic ethical value, quite apart from the distribution of wealth to which it might lead. Both passages, in my view, can and should be read differently. So let me just go through this, because I can do it pretty quickly, and then you have all the evidence that Fleischacker has in hand to make his thesis, and uh, then I clear the way for my alternative. The first passage 
is Kant's statement in the idea for universal history that, quote, civil freedom can no longer easily be infringed without disadvantage to all trades and industries, and especially to commerce, end quote. Kant here claims that infringing on civil liberties, such as the freedom of religion, this is in the context of the passage, has deleterious effects on the economy, and Fleischacker reads this as a defense of free trade. But in my view, saying that the freedom of religion and other civil liberties are conducive to trade is not the same as advocating free trade. In fact, a political system that combines the freedom of religion with taxes on trade is perfectly conceivable, and many of us live in such societies. What the relevance of liberty is for the economy is explained in a second passage, which is also one of the two key witness passages that Fleischacker mentions. And the second passage, which he sees as support for his thesis, is Kant's remark in the conjectural beginning of human history that, quote, without freedom, no industry takes place. Kant here argues that if a state wants to be powerful, it has to be wealthy, and that liberty has a good effect on a state's wealth because people became, become more industrious if they feel free, and that the desire for wealth and power on the part of the states hence tends to moderate despotic oppression. But there's no indication in my mind, there's no indication in this passage that this feeling of freedom on the part of the people is in any way connected to free trade. Therefore, neither of the two passages that Fleischacker uses to support his interpretation really shows that Kant defended free trade at all. There's no even mention of free trade. The freedom mentioned is a different kind of freedom. It's freedom of religion or feeling free, but something else. And instead, there is, in fact, direct and unambiguous evidence that Kant defended import restrictions and taxes on trade, at least under certain circumstances. In On the Common Saying from 93, Kant writes, quote, measures that might be required for the existence of a commonwealth include certain restrictions on imports so that the means of livelihood may be supported for the benefit of the subjects themselves and not as an advantage to foreigners or an encouragement for the industry of others. For without prosperity of the people, the state wouldn't have enough strength to resist foreign enemies or to maintain itself as a commonwealth, end quote. Fleischegger notes the passage, but doesn't attribute much significance to it, merely claiming that it suggests that Kant, quote, either didn't read, didn't understand, or had forgotten much of the wealth of nations. <laughs> and on, I would say he, he did read it, or at least knew of some of the content of it, because we know that because he refers to it. But I think Kant would disagree with Smith, which is a fourth option not discussed by Fleischegger. <laughs> <laughs> in another revealing passage in Toward Perpetual Peace, Kant defends the right on the part of China and Japan to be very restrictive in their dealings with foreign trading companies, with Japan granting access only to the Dutch and preventing them from having any contact with the local population. Kant motivates his endorsement of their policy in terms of the right of the Chinese and Japanese to avoid the litany of evils that would otherwise be caused by European trading companies. And he mentions that the Chinese and Japanese knew what they were doing because they tried out contact with the Europeans before. What this comes down to is that, that Kant defends the Japanese and Chinese protectionist policies insofar as they are necessary to avoid severe injustice. Importantly, a defense of import restrictions for the sake of avoiding a litany of evils 
or for maintaining the existence of the Commonwealth is not the same as an unqualified defense of protectionism in general. There's no reason to interpret the passages in On the Common Saying and Toward Perpetual Peace as allowing all forms of protectionism for all kinds of reasons. Moreover, the principles of Kant's cosmopolitan international political theory limit permissible protectionism by prohibiting measures that would harm others. Thus, although Kant's defense protectionism as justified in certain cases, it's not a defense of protectionism in general as generally permissible or advisable. But in any event, it's clear from these texts, I think, that free trade is not an unconditional and intrinsic ideal, in Fleischhecker's words, for Kant. Both in On the Common Saying and in Toward Perpetual Peace, he defend, Kant's defense import restrictions in terms of the requirement to maintain the civil condition and to prevent severe injustice. He regards justice and political autonomy of peoples as states as more important than the freedom of international trade. Now the same point can also be made on the basis of Kant's defense of state-funded poverty relief in combination with his ideal of a Völkerstaat. So here we get to the more speculative part. In the domestic situation, Kant claims that the state should provide support to those who are unable to support themselves and that the state has the right to impose taxes on its citizens for that purpose. And in his discussions of cosmopolitan right, Kant argues that states and human individuals should be regarded as members of a universal state of human beings, and as allgemeinen Menschenstaats. Now, if relations among states are similar to relations within the domestic society, in the relevant respects, then it would seem that a similar duty of poverty relief would hold between the member states in an international federation, um, at an international federative level. So I, what I want to do is look at the domestic situation, see what the argument for poverty relief is, and then saying that insofar as Kant posits a similar situation as an ideal at the international level, the same argument would seem to hold there. Um, and again, then, the upshot will be that Kant is no unconditional free trader. So, a few words about poverty relief in the state. Kant doesn't regard joint preservation, but rather justice or right as the final end of the state. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't think that the state has a duty to support those whose lives are endangered by the vicissitudes of the market. He regards justice or right as the aim of the state, but he regards the support of those who are unable to provide in their own livelihood as one of the tasks of the state that's associated with that aim. Kant's reasoning is roughly as follows, and it's a contested passage, and the interpretation is difficult, but let me give you my reading. Kant's reasoning is roughly as follows. When citizens-to-be establish a republic for the sake of justice, they also aim at its permanence, because permanence is not a merely temporary concern. But if they aim at the permanence of the Republic, they aim at the permanence of its constituent members, because a Republic cannot be conceived as divorced from the citizens that form it. A Republic is the people united politically into a state. So maintaining the Republic just means maintaining its citizens, insofar as this is possible, of course, and Kant adds that little clause. Therefore, the Republic ought to relieve the poverty of those who are not able to meet their basic needs. I will not go into the precise construction of Kant's defense of taxation that he adds in order to uh, make this happen, 
but only mention that he specifically mentions both taxes on property and taxes on trade as options uh, for you know, providing the means to, uh, for the poverty relief. And in defending property taxes for the sake of poverty relief, and especially in defending taxes on trade, Kant's position is clearly far removed from that of the free trade libertarians. Um, and I think that we can <coughs> extend Kant's argument to the international level, and so let me now turn to the question of whether there's a possible analogous construction in Kant's international political theory that tells us something about how uh, states should uh, treat each other. Kant argues that states don't have a right to coerce each other into an international federation, <coughs> and that international right cannot mandate more than a loose and voluntary league of states. Right? We all know that. Although Kant also says that reason requires a stronger kind of international federation, one with common laws and law enforcement. But as a matter of international right, nothing more than a loose and voluntary league. The aim of this loose league is to halt international warfare. Because this league doesn't have, the enf have enforceable common laws, it cannot possibly institutionalize poverty relief and taxation schemes as matters of right. Moreover, the specific justification of poverty relief that Kant articulates in the case of a republic isn't even applicable in a parallel manner for a loose league of states because it's tied to the specific features of the relations between citizens in a republican state. Right? The argument was based on, on um, what a republic is, and a loose league is not a republic. So there's no analogy there. Um, and so, as long as there is just a mere League of States, uh, I don't think Kant can craft that kind of argument for poverty relief at the international level. Kant also defends the ideal of a world republic, or Völkerstaat, a state of states, however, which I believe is the ideal of a republican international federation with common laws and the coercive powers to enforce them. This stronger federation should not be brought about through coercion, right? that's why it's not a matter of international right, States themselves ought to work towards it and join such a federation of their own accord, as I've argued at length in a different paper. In Toward Perpetual Peace, Kant wrote that states should ultimately establish a stronger federation, a union with other states, quote, for the purpose of a lawful settlement of their conflicts. Um, I have a few more quotes in that uh, direction. Um, in the Metaphysical Morals, Kant wrote that before states form a federation, all international right is merely provisional, and that a true perpetual peace is possible, quote, only in a universal union of states, Staatenverein, analogous to that by which a people becomes a state. A body which Kant here also calls a state of peoples, Volkerstaat. He writes that this ideal will never be realized completely, but that we should nevertheless work towards it, because it can be, and should be, approximated. And this was a quote given yesterday at full length. Now, if the relations between member states in this ideal federative world republic are indeed similar to relations between citizens in a republic, as Kant suggests in these passages, then the argument for the relief of involuntary poverty at the international level could be phrased in terms parallel to those that apply to the domestic case. When republics establish a republic of republics for the sake of justice, they aim at its permanence, because justice is not a merely temporary concern. But when they aim at the permanence of a republic of republics, they, only, they also aim at the permanence of its constituent members. 
because a world republic cannot be conceived as divorced from the members' republics that constitute it. So maintaining the republic of republics would then mean maintaining the constituent republics. Therefore, the International Federation ought, insofar as this is possible, to relieve the poverty of those member states which are not able to maintain themselves. That's the, the argument, as I think it can be developed for the ideal state right, of the, uh, that Kant describes. And that would then give you some very rather minimal but still uh, few of what the relationship between states would involve. Um, and now in the final section I want to say a few things about uh, to what extent free trade uh, would be endorsed uh, in, in, on uh, Kant's view. And so to what extent the liberalization of trade uh, would be advisable or uh, permissible on Kant's view. Kant's emphasis on justice and the associated taxes and redistributive schemes does not imply that he would have to be opposed to every form of liberalization of international trade. His position allows him to favor a liberalization of trade under conditions of justice. Or better, his position allows him to allow the citizens of a republic or the member states of an international federation to favor a limited liberalization of trade because this is a political decision. This, it's a political decision to, uh, to what extent peoples want to liberalize their trade. Kant could consistently hold that if states are just and if their citizens wish, wish to liberalize international trade, it would be entirely within their right to do so, provided, and this is the limitation, provided they don't do away with the background conditions of justice, such as poverty relief for citizens who lose their jobs through no fault of their own and who are unable to support themselves. And it might be sensible for citizens to choose to liberalize trade if this has significant advantages and if it can be institutionalized in a just manner. <coughs> Kant's texts certainly don't suggest a position such as the one developed by Fichte in his 1800 book, The Closed Commercial State. Fichte saw himself as following the same basic justificatory strategy as Kant with regard to the role and authority of the state, but it led him to advocate a state-run planned economy. In that society, all in individuals would have centrally assigned tasks in the process of the production of goods. Fichte defended this system on the grounds that the distribution of wealth and other social goods should not be left to chance or individual initiative. It should be regulated entirely by the state in order to guarantee that all would receive the same basic that all would receive the basic necessities. Foreign trade by individuals or corporations would be forbidden in this state because this would interfere with central planning. If there were to be foreign trade at all, it could be carried on only by the state itself. So Fichte saw the vicissitudes of the international economic market as inimical to the project of ensuring distributive justice and equality. Kant, by contrast, um, um, repeatedly praises the productive effects of competition in general. He explicitly argues that natural endowments are unequally distributed among the population and that considerable material inequality is consistent with right, provided that just background conditions are in place 
that allow all individuals to make use of their different levels of talent, industriousness, and luck. That was a quote. Kant regards individual initiative and rivalry as having a very salutary effect. And he defends the view that different kinds of inequality are compatible with their equality as subjects under the law, with their equality as subjects under the law. Apart from his argument in defense of state support for those who are unable to provide for their own basic necessity, Kant does not argue for any principles to reduce or limit inequality. There's no difference principle, for example. Kant merely insists that there be no unjust social hindrances, such as hereditary privileges that hold back some while benefiting others. Now, Kant's critique of unjust social hindrances, such as hereditary privileges, when transposed to the international level, would also imply the demand to eliminate the persistent effects, I think, of colonialism in international trading relations. Given the privileged status of colonizing states in comparison to the newly formed post-colonial states at the point of decolonization, and given the way in which this inequality has tended to perpetuate itself, the relationship between former colonizers and formerly colonized might well be an example of the kind of hereditary privilege at the international level that should be abolished. Abolishing these and other unjust social hindrances would still allow for considerable inequality among states, however, as Kant does not stipulate any principles for regulating in international inequalities that arise within the context of just background conditions. Right, so what I'm basically saying is uh, you can find some uh, view in Kant of um, what just background conditions for trade would be, and uh, but under just background conditions, quite a bit of inequality would still seem to be permissible on Kant's account. I don't know whether we want that, but that, as a matter of interpretation, that's how it is. Um, so Kant's view is compatible with a much more positive attitude towards a considerable liberalization of international trade than is Fichte's theory in the closed commercial state. The citizens of a republic could rightfully decide to do away with tariffs and taxes on trade, provided the background conditions ensuring the justice of these relationships are in place, and provided poverty relief can be paid for by different means. But this relative liberalization of trading relationships will never turn into the free trade in the sense in which Fleischacker thinks Kant defends it, and in which free trade defenders usually understand it. And I think that holds not only for the domestic, but also for the international levels. Um, so, uh, just to wrap up, I hope to have shown that there's a tight connection between Kant's views on race and his views on European colonial practices overseas, and that his views on these matters change radically <coughs> during the mid-90s as compared with the 1780s. And as far as Kant's mid-1790s positive ideal of international trading relationships is concerned, I've argued that he was by no means an advocate of unconditional free trade, but that on his view, trade should be just first, and perhaps if the citizens so decide, free later. Thank you. I had in the, um, in the paper I sent around also a few parts on uh, this um, claim of Kant's that uh, the spirit of trade promotes peace. And I wrote, isn't that odd? Isn't that a weird claim to make, given that Kant in the very same text also criticizes 
the trading countries for um, perpetrating all kinds of injustice. And I still haven't figured out exactly how to square that. And I think Sankar's view is this is a paradox, right? That That's what you said yesterday. And maybe that is what it is. It, there's just no more thing we can say about this that that's very paradoxical for Kant to expect peace to come from that which causes uh, all the problems. I mean, to, to, to expect the solution to come from the cause of the problem. But... Um, for those of you who read the, the longer version and who have thoughts on this, I would like to invite you to help me out. <laughs>